Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. As I read more in, into this, what I discover is uh, a much more profound definition of the problem. And this comes from, from the social credit side from C.H. Uh, Douglas. The fact is that the private banking cartel actually owns the creation of credit itself. And then if you follow the chain of logic, you, you have to come to the conclusion that they own all of the societal wealth. They actually control everything. Because the entire productive output of a society. But the only way to access that productive output is through money, and they create the money and the credit, then by extension, they control the government, the legal and economic systems, all the social institutions. <laughs> so that's how profound this problem actually is. I couldn't agree more. And okay. to make it uh, simpler and more straightforward is that they've been given this this incredible privilege to create money, but their sole motivation is profit. And what PMC proposals is a sovereign money system where money becomes a public utility. Well, here's another point about a money system, which we have not talked about yet. The notion of money in circulation. Now, I, I read of one example where there was a time script, a time limited stamp script so that the money um, had a certain timestamp imprinted on it. And the function of that was to encourage people to spend the money into circulation. What is your point of view with respect to saving, uh, which I thought from the Austrian point of view is actually a good thing so that people can accumulate capital and invest in businesses, for example, as opposed to keeping the money in circulation? Well, I think what your, your example, I think, is about the Wargel uh, township. And which was actually in Austria, I think, or some part of a Germany. So, yeah, that was an experiment. And, of course, in the short term, it gets the economy booming. Um, but, of course, it discourages saving, which is something which is right away a problem with that system. So if you look at in a narrow minded way, um, you're trying to stimulate the economy. Yeah, you do that. But then what do you do? When you, and nobody's got any money for security into the future. And that's the biggest problem with that. And that's why it never, never caught on. So we need to have saved. Well, I made a few notes here. Um, and it, what's funny is how, in some respects, we repudiate the Austrian school of economics uh, with respect to the gold standard, for example. We'll, we'll get to that a bit later. But in other respects, we embrace the Austrian school because they agree with, with you, they say savings is a good thing. Savings allows a person to form capital, which re-enters the economy as investment in productive businesses, and it obviates the need for borrowing, and it gives you uh, a degree of, uh, you know, a sense of security and personal freedom. We have to empower people to have more say in how money is created and how it's distributed. Well, that leads me actually to my next question. I saw that the quantity of money issued is crucial. And there are consequences if there is either too much or too little. And the other question is, uh, you know, where is it? Is it invested? Where does it enter the economy? And how are those decisions made? Um, the board of directors at the Bank of Canada, um, each one of those board of directors represents one of the provinces or territories. 
let's say the BC rep for the Board of Governors um, has the task before him or before her to decide on investment. Now, that's that person is going to need a huge office, huge resources. They're going to have to somehow do public consultations, do statistical uh, measure, right. and so on. Is, is, that, is that what you're yes. proposing? Yes, it's it's not going to be. It's not like uh, something that just automatically happens. And you got to realize it's humans involved, um, and there has to be a, a a change in the way we look at the money creation process. So I wanted to follow up on a point that we made with, res- with respect to the gold standard. Let, let me set up the question this way. There's a, a commentator. He's got a website. It's called Real Currencies. A uh, Dutch guy. His name is uh, Michaels. He says the banking cartel goes back and forth on and off of a gold standard. He says because they don't care. Uh, under either system, they will continue the practice of usury. Not only that, but contrary to what the Austrians say, being on a gold standard is no guarantee whatever of stability because, he, as he points out, during the Great Depression, that occurred when there was a gold standard in place. Can you make sense out of this notion of a gold standard, why the elite would either embrace it or reject it, and um, what is the significance of gold? Well, it's really historical more than anything. This is basically the origins of fractional reserve banking. And, of course, it's failed time and again uh, when they go over the gold standard because there always comes a time when you need more credit, which just means, okay, so you have to leverage more, a higher percentage on the gold. So what's the point of having this gold, which is supposed to be stable? It's a totally meaningless benchmark. Then how do you account for the central banks acquiring more and more of it? China is actually a good example. I'm not exactly sure what the motivation is. Why they're collecting it is maybe an antiquated idea of, okay, what happens if everything collapses? then we can go back to the gold standard because we have all the gold. That's the only sense I can make out of it. Uh, Similarly, I'm I'm thinking, well, uh, as Michael suggested, uh, it goes back and forth, back and forth. And so perhaps they're counting on a time. Um, and the whole the whole question is confidence, public confidence. So if public confidence fails in one system and and um, defaults back to a previous system, which is the the precious metals, then they will be in a position to to command that situation. Exactly. All right. So the next point, the question of usury. There's a distinction between usura, uh, the the original usury, which is charged for the use of capital, and interest. Interest originally was simply um, a reimbursement for expense, like a, a service fee almost. There must be a difference between illicit usury, when money is created at no expense on a keyboard and then lands out at interest, whereas you might have legitimate usury, uh, which is the charging of interest. In other words, if you've saved, if you've been one of those savers that we were talking about a few minutes ago, and you uh, lend your money to a business, and to um, expect a rate of return, then that could be conceptualized as a legitimate form of usury or, or interest. Do you um, condemn usury in a blanket sense, or do you recognize a difference between illicit usury, where you're charging interest on money created out of nothing, and legitimate interest-bearing uh, loans? First of all, the your terminology being illegitimate um, you know, the laws enable banks. So it's in that sense, it's not illegitimate. Well, you could say you could say morally. Ill- illegitimate. Yes, you could say morally Ill- illegitimate. Um, so you could make that distinction. Usury, like in the 14th century, there's this great book by uh, Barbara Tuckman called The Distant Mirror. She's not a 
economist, she's a historian, uh, but she talks about how the Catholic Church, you know, was against their religion. So what they did is they actually kind of forced the Jewish sector because they had a different belief system in the banking. Yeah, I, I, I translated the first couple of chapters of Solzhenitsyn's book on the, the relationship between the Jewish people and the Russians. And going back in the day in the 10th century, it's exactly as you describe, uh, the princely powers, the king, the kingship would uh, collude with the Jewish community to enforce all of this tax collection. And uh, it was a comfortable relationship. Yeah, it's um, a pretty interesting piece of history. Well, there's also the question of, you know, who is who? What what can you call Jewish versus Khazar and all the rest it, of it? It's not a race yeah. thing. But I, but I wanted to ask you about this uh, Austrian notion of how it would it's legitimate, morally legitimate and economically legitimate to save capital and then to lend someone uh, this capital in the hope that they would build a productive business. In that productive business, let's say they're making 8% and they only have to have to pay us back 5 As long as there's two parties and they both agree to it, you know, I don't have a problem. But when it's forced on you, like our current banking system where you don't have a choice, unfortunately, interest leads to other financial instruments and leverage and money making money. With regard to this uh, financialization of the economy, uh, Dick Eastman also describes that too. He calls he calls it the second loop. There's the upper loop and the, the lower loop. So the upper loop is the financialized, etherealized section of the economy. And the bottom loop is the, the real economy. And we don't need the upper one, as you say. Um, it's just a complete artificial entity that uh, really drains wealth from the bottom loop. Yeah. You know, there was one other observation that I had when I did my reading and that is that I tried to categorize the schools of thought for monetary reform. And if I'm if I'm correct, they seem to be divided into roughly three categories. One is the statist. So we're looking at a centralized public authority to be the source of money. And it, it's uh, a case where government seizes or takes back its own legal authority to issue the currency. And then a second school of thought is sort of a quasi-statist. You've got a central public authority again, but what they're doing is they're administering a decentralized solution. So here, this is where the social credit uh, and Dick Eastman's version of social credit comes in. What he would have the government do is to distribute a dividend to be spent by individual citizens into circulation, and that would be the sole source of money entering, in, entering the economy. So government would not be trusted with uh, funding its own programs and deciding who is deserving and so on. The third school of thought that I could discern was the sort of decentralist or populist um, in various forms, voluntary agreements, commercial networks, local networks, various systems of exchange. So that's how I see uh, monetary reform uh, sorted out into basic categories. And I think I would place the Progressive Money Canada school of thought in the statist uh, the first one, because you're not advocating simply for uh, a dividend in the social credit sense to let the public spend, but you actually want to support public public programs. So, for example, you said, let's uh, fund the health sector with uh, money that we create at the Bank of Canada. But then right away, um, I can hear Dick Eastman, if he were on the line with us, he would, he would probably object to that. And he would say, no, why are you, according to government, the privilege of deciding where they spend money. And this this is also the thinking of E.C. Regal. 
he would say that whoever issues the money uh, does so in an act of purchasing and they control in a sense what it is they purchase so if government were allowed to simply spend as it wanted to with money created out of nothing then it would not be um, a solution to our problems well in the PMC proposal the government wouldn't have a free hand so anything like major expenditure like um, the PMC transition plan that would first have to be sanctioned by the public so through referendum says do you want to do this okay and every time and as this thing builds if it's successful it runs for a couple of years then okay let's expand this okay should we do where should we spend next again another referendum to vote on these actual things so but the idea so that's straightforward um we would never like allow the government just to spend money any way it wants there has to be public input uh with reference to the universal basic income uh that's what you were referring to I think it's a pretty good idea, um, and there's no reason why you couldn't do both. So you could have this centralized um, thing in addition to a universal basic income. So there's no reason why they have to be exclusive of each other. Um, I, th- I, I yeah. There's a distinction between the universal basic income and the dividend in a social credit sense. I think we should make that yeah. distinction. So, so, so the, the UBI is something that would occur in our current system where it's funded through taxation. The dividend idea is to fund it through money that we would create from the Bank of Canada. I think this is an important point about PMC that people need to understand. What, what you're doing is progressing in the first instance, in your first proposed action from a statist point of view to, you know, to have to let government have its uh, current authority, but simply fund a sector using money we create from the Bank of Canada to progress through a series of decisions and checked with the public approved by the public through public consultation, whether it's, um, you know, a town hall meetings or whether it's uh, I have a very clear idea of what it would look like. Once you agreed that, okay, we're going to start this program with a referendum, and then if this is successful, in two years we're going to have another referendum on how we're going to increase spending or reduce it or whatever. So the public will have direct input. It'll be more like kind of like the the Swedish democracy, where you know they have a, the, the highest participation, democratic participation rate of any country in the world because your vote actually counts for something. Um, well, that's that's interesting. You know, we before in our discussion we were talking about whether it was possible to have a free market solution, and you said it's impossible. And th- this is an interesting sort of debate. Um, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what we're doing is we're progressing from a statist view to a quasi-statist view, where the public has significant input, as you're pointing out, to eventually a sort of a populist view, where where the population has decision-making power. I think what you're hoping for is a reformed and responsible public authority to administer a money system. Well, I more than just an authority, not an authority, but responsive to public input, and I think it the important part of it is the referendum so that when it comes time that people know this ahead of time okay we're going to have a referendum in two years so people know ahead of time and they can see how the economy is going and we're going to propose several spending bills um, and we want to know which one the public supports 
and you don't leave it up the politician to decide. But you're proposing changing the parliamentary system so that uh, decision-making for public spending would be significantly altered. That is absolutely correct. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes, and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca.